In the year leading up to the 2020 election, we're counting down the biggest scandals in American political history. This is number 42, the story of G. Harold Carswell, one of the most controversial Supreme Court nominees in history. Imagine you're the President of the United States. After a hard-fought campaign, you were elected last November and inaugurated a little less than four months ago. You're still getting used to the world's most important job. Now, on this lovely spring morning, your staff brings you the message you've been waiting for since the day you decided to run for president. A United States Supreme Court justice is retiring. It's time for you to make the biggest decision of your life. This moment arrived for President Richard Nixon on May 14, 1969, when Justice Abe Fortas left the bench in the wake of an ethics scandal. Nixon knew this decision, perhaps more than any other he made in his first term, would determine his chances of winning re-election. The public would be watching carefully to see what kind of a judicial future he wanted for the country. Plus, after dealing with Justice Fortas and his financial improprieties, the Senate would be examining any nominee thoroughly. Any hint of scandal risked a failed nomination. But that was just fine with President Richard Milhouse Nixon, because he had a plan in mind for the confirmation hearings. No matter what Senate Democrats did in response to Nixon's next move, they'd be playing right into his hands, and the public would come out loving him. All he had to do to spring his trap was choose the right nominee. Meanwhile, in North Florida, 50-year-old District Court Judge G. Harold Carswell slept peacefully in his bed. He had no idea that he was one of the cards in his president's winning hand, nor that his life was about to change forever. Welcome to Political Scandals, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Political Scandals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Political Scandals in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Before we get back to Justice Carswell, we need to set the stage. Because if you're like most Americans, you think one thing when you think of Richard Nixon's time as president, Watergate. But this is a story about a decision made by the Nixon Americans knew before Watergate. The Nixon who campaigned on the promise to end the Vietnam War and who signed groundbreaking environmental legislation early in his presidency. This is also a story about the early 1970s, 
the decade in which peace marches and the counterculture movement dominated the national airwaves. The second wave of feminism was in full swing, with women taking to the streets to demand pay equity, access to credit, abortion rights, and an end to employment discrimination. The assassinations in the late 1960s of Malcolm X, Martin Luther King Jr., and Fred Hampton had shocked the nation. Desegregating schools was a hot-button issue. To get elected in these fast-changing times, Nixon had portrayed himself as farther left on several issues than most Republicans. That didn't mean he intended to actually govern from the middle, though. Nixon's enemies called him Tricky Dick, a nickname he earned early in his political career after running simultaneously in both the Democratic and Republican primaries for the same California Senate seat. By the time he became president, Nixon had honed his tricks. He'd also recruited the cleverest political strategists of his generation to work with him. And he was going to need all their collective wiles to make sure he stayed in office. Nixon wasn't exactly a cultural fit for the 1970s. Despite the left-leaning compromises he'd run on, his personal priorities were typical for Republicans of his generation. Law and order, states' rights, lower government spending, and staunch opposition to communism. A lesser politician would have worried about winning re-election, with public opinion moving so rapidly away from his core positions. But Nixon, as always, had something up his sleeve, and it involved turning the then-democratic Deep South red. If we went into all the details of the Southern strategy, it would take up the whole episode. But here's what it meant for the open Supreme Court seat. Nixon intended to make the confirmation hearings all about race and segregation. He knew that if he pushed Democrats far enough left on racial justice issues, they'd lose support of white Southern voters, who had long been a key Democratic constituency. Meanwhile, if Dems refused to move left in response to his provocations, they'd lose support from black voters and young people. By the way, none of what we're saying here comes from Nixon's opponents. We're summarizing memos written during this period by Nixon's own campaign strategists. But we should also note that if a Democrat had been in the Oval Office during this period, they might have sprung a similar trap on Senate Republicans. If you've been following this podcast, you already know that doing whatever it takes to win is a trait that knows no party lines. To put his plan into motion, Nixon just had to do one simple thing. Nominate an experienced Southern strict constitutionalist judge to the Supreme Court. Anyone fitting those criteria at the time would have come up as a judge during the Jim Crow era and would likely have made rulings or statements supporting Jim Crow. Inevitably, the nomination would become controversial. What the strict constitutionalist part of that description means depends on who you ask. It's usually a label attached to justices who believe that the U.S. Constitution should be taken literally as written, rather than interpreted through the lens of modern society. Overall, strict constitutionalists tend to be more conservative than non-originalists. 
Of course, nominating a Supreme Court justice was about more than electoral gamesmanship, even for Nixon. The new Supreme Court justice would forever be a part of his legacy, remaining in office for decades after the president retired. So Nixon searched the nation for someone who not only fit his demographic criteria, but who he'd be proud to have placed on the nation's highest court. And by August of 1969, Nixon found his man. And that brings us to Harold Carswell, right? No, not quite. On August 21st, President Nixon nominated Clement Hainsworth to the Supreme Court. Hailing from South Carolina, Hainsworth was currently serving as Chief Justice of the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. And, as expected, he ignited controversy. Particularly unpopular was a past decision in which he'd allowed a Virginia county to close all of its public schools rather than desegregate them. That ruling was later overturned. Hainsworth claimed he'd changed with the times and no longer believed in segregation. But during confirmation hearings, Joseph L. Rao, counsel to the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights, called him a sort of laundered segregationist. The label stuck, and not just with Democrats. Moderate Republicans, mostly from northern states, turned against Hainsworth, too. Race wasn't the only issue with the nominee. The Senate also took issue with Hainsworth's record on labor issues. Even more troubling were allegations that Hainsworth had ruled on at least one case in which his personal investments created a conflict of interest. That didn't make him look like a great candidate to fill the seat of someone who'd resigned over alleged financial corruption. Down went Hainsworth on a vote of 55 to 45, exactly three months after he was nominated. 17 Republicans joined 38 Democrats in opposing Hainsworth's elevation to the Supreme Court. It was the first time in almost four decades that the Senate failed to confirm a president's Supreme Court pick. The defection of 17 Republicans might seem shocking, but strict party-line votes were less common than they are now. Nixon would have expected to lose some votes from the moderate bloc known as Rockefeller Republicans. In fact, he probably counted on it. The failure of his nominee gave him a chance to posture to the public, bemoaning the reluctance of Northerners to confirm a Southern justice. And that, in turn, gave white Southern voters a reason to feel like Nixon and his Republican Party understood their identity and concerns. Keep in mind that in 1969, many older adults had grown up with a grandparent who fought in the Civil War. A large contingent of older Southerners held that legacy close and still saw themselves as Southern first, American second. And just like today, seniors were more reliable voters than young people, making them highly valuable to politicians. Nixon's plan was working. By rejecting a Southern nominee, Democrats and moderate Republicans had helped Nixon sell himself to white Southern voters. So why not do it all again and hammer in the message? Nixon doubled down and nominated a second strict constitutionalist from the South. It almost didn't matter if the second nominee was confirmed or not. 
If the Senate went along with his choice, Nixon would be a hero to white Southerners for putting one of their own on the Supreme Court. In the event of a second failed nomination, he'd just skewer Democrats again over their apparent Northern bias. Southern voters would shift towards the Republican Party either way. So Nixon ordered his men to find a, quote, good federal judge farther to the south and farther to the right. And that does bring us to Harold Carswell, Nixon's second nominee for the Supreme Court seat. He fit the bill. Born on December 22, 1919, in Irwinton, Georgia, George Harold Carswell was, in his own words, quote, a Southerner by ancestry, birth, training, inclination, belief, and practice. Carswell also came with the advantage of being a familiar name to Richard Nixon, who had appointed the judge to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in June of 1969. Just six months later, on January 19, 1970, the president formally nominated Carswell to the Supreme Court. If that sounds like a very quick ascension from appeals court to the highest court in all the land, you're right. Most judges aren't lucky enough to be promoted twice in six months by the same president. On the other hand, Carswell came with plenty of judicial experience, albeit at a lower level. He was initially appointed to the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Florida by President Dwight D. Eisenhower. At the time, 38-year-old Carswell was the youngest federal judge in the nation. So by 1970, Carswell already had 12 years of experience as a federal judge, which is more than enough to meet the bar, no pun intended. Several Supreme Court justices, including current Justice Elena Kagan, had never been judges at all when they were nominated. But Justice Kagan had served as Dean of Harvard Law School and Solicitor General of the United States. Carswell, on the other hand, had a wholly unimpressive 12-year career on the district court. A shocking 58% of his decisions were reversed by higher courts compared to a 31% national average. Most legal experts consider reversal rates to be a key marker of judicial performance. The fewer reversals, the better the judge. Up to a point, anyway. One wouldn't want a judge who'd never been reversed. That would either indicate that they weren't hearing many cases or that they lacked the courage to disagree with the leanings of higher courts. If his poor performance metrics on the district court were Carswell's only problem, he might have made it to the Supreme Court bench. The last thing the Senate really wanted to do was reject another of Nixon's nominees. They saw how Nixon was using the first rejection to his political advantage, shouting about the president's right to nominate anyone he pleased. If the Senate refused him again, Nixon would paint them as obstructionists, unwilling to let the president do his job. So, most of the Senate wanted to confirm nominee number two. But within two days of Carswell's nomination, one reporter gave them a very good reason not to. Coming up, Carswell's past exposed. Now, back to the story. 
On January 19, 1970, President Richard Nixon nominated George Harold Carswell to fill a Supreme Court vacancy. The Georgia-born appeals court judge met Nixon's criteria for a new justice. He was Southern and a strict constitutionalist. The Senate, on the other hand, quickly found reason to be concerned about the nominee. Remember the quote from Justice Carswell that Kate read earlier? A Southerner by ancestry, birth, training, inclination, belief, and practice? Well, that's not the full quotation. It's an excerpt from a speech Carswell delivered in 1948 when he was running for a seat in the Georgia State Legislature. Carswell went on to lose that election. The speech had been largely forgotten by 1970 when Edward Roeder tracked it down in the basement of the Wilkinson County Courthouse in Georgia. It appeared in an archived issue of the Irwinton Bulletin, which was a weekly legal paper edited by Carswell. He'd made his own speech his paper's cover story. When Edward Roeder found it, he knew he had a huge story on his hands. The courthouse wouldn't let him remove their archived paper, so he took a photograph of the article and hightailed it back to his office to file a story. Within 24 hours, the full quotation became national headline news. And here it is. As a warning, it's very racist. Quote, I am a Southerner by ancestry, birth, training, inclination, belief, and practice. I believe that segregation of the races is proper and the only practical and correct way of life in our states. By the way, as originally printed in Carswell's paper, every word was capitalized and the word only was in all caps. Later in the speech, Carswell went on to say, quote, I yield to no man as a fellow candidate or as a fellow citizen in the firm, vigorous belief in the principles of white supremacy, and I shall always be so governed. The word vigorous was misspelled, and again, the entire text was printed in title case. The words no man were in all caps. Apparently, proofreading wasn't one of Carswell's gifts. Neither was jurisprudence, as we already mentioned. Come to think of it, I'm not sure anyone ever found evidence of something he was good at. As you might expect, the news that Richard Nixon had nominated another segregationist to the Supreme Court was divisive, to say the least. Northerners and liberal Democrats were horrified. White Southerners were equally dismayed, but for different reasons. Many of them found it unfair that Carswell was being held to account in 1970 for comments made in 1948. Carswell himself took the controversy surprisingly lightly. He dismissed his own past statements by saying that he lost the 1948 election, quote, because I was considered too liberal. He also claimed, quote, there is nothing in my private life, nor is there anything in my public record of some 17 years, which could possibly indicate that I harbor racist sentiments or the insulting suggestion of racial superiority. It was an invitation that journalists and Democrats were only too happy to take. They began looking through Carswell's public record with the intention of proving him a liar. As for Nixon, he stuck to his guns, 
He even implied that if the Senate rejected a second nominee, they'd be violating the U.S. Constitution's separation of powers. Nixon claimed to believe the Constitution granted the president an absolute right to appoint the Supreme Court justices of their choice. But in terms of process, that wasn't quite the case, as we saw with Judge Clement Hainsworth. Let's delve into the process behind Senate approval for Supreme Court judicial nominations. To be confirmed, Carswell's nomination would have to survive two key votes. First, the Senate Judiciary Committee, composed of 22 senators, had to vote on whether or not to move the nominee forward to the full Senate for a vote. They'd also have to decide whether or not to issue a recommendation that the nominee be approved. After that, all 100 senators would vote yes or no on the nomination with a simple majority of 51 votes required for confirmation. Senators also had the option to filibuster judicial nominees. If a filibuster was called, 60 votes were required to end the debate and move on to a vote. Filibustering a judicial confirmation is no longer allowed, by the way. The Senate did away with the judicial filibuster in 2017. The big takeaway here is this. Carswell would need at least nine votes in the Judiciary Committee and then at least 51 in the Senate to become a Supreme Court justice. Nixon knew the judiciary was stacked with right-leaning senators who would almost certainly give Carswell a full vote. The only thing that worried him about that part of the process was time. While the Judiciary Committee considered Carswell, reporters would be doing their best to dig up dirt about him. You might be wondering how there was so much dirt to dig up on someone who'd already been vetted by Nixon's administration. One take on this is that the president knew exactly how bad Carswell's past statements would play with the electorate and nominated him anyway. After all, his own team's memos brag about how a Southern right-wing nominee would hurt Democrats. That's not the only theory, though. Historian David Yaloff, who studies how presidents select Supreme Court nominees, thinks Nixon's people just didn't look into their nominees' background very thoroughly. Carswell had already been confirmed in the Senate to three judicial positions, including his current job on the Court of Appeals. Nixon's advisors may have assumed it would be unlikely for the Senate to say no to Carswell now, just a few months after approving his last promotion. Attorney General John N. Mitchell, who was in charge of vetting potential nominees, told Nixon that Carswell was, quote, too good to be true. The truth might be closer to the middle. Nixon didn't necessarily expect the Senate to approve a farther south, farther right nominee. It's possible that he just didn't care enough to vet someone who was basically a sacrificial lamb. From Nixon's perspective, a win or loss for Carswell was a win for Republicans. But from Carswell's point of view, this was the biggest opportunity he'd ever been offered. In fact, it was the biggest opportunity in the world for someone in his line of work. He must have been thrilled to get that life-changing call from his president calling him up to the Supreme Court. And now, as the Judiciary Committee prepared to vote on his nomination, the public was dragging his entire career through the mud. 
journalists, civil rights advocates, and political wonks accepted his invitation to dig through his public record for any evidence of racial bias. And soon the papers were full of new allegations against him. To some extent, Carswell knew what he was getting into by accepting the nomination. His previous confirmation to the appeals court had faced opposition from the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights, an umbrella group of civil rights organizations. They claimed Carswell decided civil rights cases unfairly. But this backlash was like nothing he'd experienced before. Harold Carswell had never been a household name, even back when he gained the favor and friendship of President Eisenhower. Now, new criticisms popped up every day. Some of them came from people he knew personally. Black lawyers who tried cases in his court claimed that Carswell shouted them down while showing deference to their white opponents. Leroy D. Clark, representing the National Conference of Black Lawyers, called Carswell the most hostile federal district judge I've ever appeared before with respect to civil rights matters. But the nominee remained defiant. He termed his past views on segregation obnoxious and abhorrent and insisted he'd changed his beliefs. It was another line of attack, however, that cut Carswell deeper. Opponents began lining up evidence that Nixon's second nominee just wasn't fit for one of the world's most impactful jobs. One Democratic senator called Carswell's judicial writings utterly pedestrian. Harsher still were the rebukes that came from within the legal community. The dean of Yale Law School said Carswell had, quote, more slender credentials than any nominee for the Supreme Court put forth this century. Ouch. That had to hurt, especially since Carswell had attended a far less prestigious law school than Yale. But no matter how much those criticisms stung the nominee, they didn't sway the Senate Judiciary Committee. It voted on February 16th to move Carswell forward to a floor vote. By a majority vote, they even gave him a positive recommendation. Civil rights advocates were horrified. Sure, they'd expected the president's nominee to at least get a floor vote. But 17 yes votes in the Judiciary Committee and a positive recommendation made it look like there was a real risk of G. Harold Carswell becoming a Supreme Court justice. A vote was scheduled for April. Hainsworth suddenly didn't look so bad by comparison. Sure, he might have been a union buster and a segregationist, but at least he was generally regarded as a competent judge. With the floor vote approaching, fleets of political reporters went into overdrive, investigating every inch of the nominee's career. The March 6th issue of the New York Times opined, when Judge Carswell was nominated two months ago, he appeared to be undistinguished but harmless. But Senate hearings and newspaper explorations since then have changed that picture. Judge Carswell has a record in the racial field that cannot be overlooked. Soon, several new stains on Carswell's record surfaced, rounding out his unflattering public portrait. In 1953, he'd started a whites-only sports fan club. In 1956, 
he helped to convert an integrated public golf course into a private, segregated country club. The segregationists were invited to lease the greens for the princely sum of $1 per year. For his part, Carswell again denied racism played any role in his choices. He said he had no idea the country club folks intended to segregate the golf course. That's only believable if Carswell wasn't following his own local news. Papers in the area had run front-page stories about the scheme to keep black golfers out, and the questionable decisions continued from there. In 1966, he sold land that came with a whites-only clause in its covenant. In December of 1969, just a month before his nomination, Carswell told a racist joke about African-American dialects at a bar association meeting. During his confirmation hearings, Carswell was questioned repeatedly about all these incidents. Sounding more and more like a broken record, he kept repeating that he wasn't racist, just unaware. He didn't know the golf course was to be whites only. He thought the joke he told about Southern accents was not about race, even though he described a, quote, dark-skinned fella as the butt of the joke. For a guy who ruled on numerous civil rights cases and made speeches about segregation, Carswell sure had a remarkable lack of knowledge about the subject. South Dakota Senator George McGovern summed up what was increasingly the public's opinion of Carswell, saying, I find his record to be distinguished largely by two qualities, racism and mediocrity. On the mediocrity side, 350 members of the legal profession signed a letter, published on March 17th, saying Carswell lacked both the legal and the mental qualifications for the Supreme Court. Meanwhile, the Supreme Court itself embarrassed Carswell by reversing one of his decisions on school segregation. But Carswell still had supporters. One of his most fervent defenders was Nebraska Senator Roman Harushka. In an interview intended to support the nominee, Harushka quipped, even if Carswell were mediocre, there are a lot of mediocre judges and people and lawyers. They are entitled to a little representation, aren't they, and a little chance? We can't all have Brandeises and Frankfurters and Cardozas. So, Harushka's best argument was that Carswell should benefit from some kind of affirmative action for unimpressive people. With friends like that, who needs enemies? The second thing was that Brandeis, Frankfurter, and Cardoza were, of course, previous Supreme Court justices. They also happened to be Jewish. So not only were Harushka's remarks the definition of damning by faint praise, some people considered them anti-Semitic. Finally, it was time to stop arguing and start voting. April 8, 1970, found the Senate finally ready to close debate. Coming up, Carswell's fate is decided. Now back to the story. On April 8, 1970, the U.S. Senate was finally ready to vote on G. Harold Carswell's nomination to the Supreme Court. After months of controversy over his civil rights record, segregationist comments, and overall lack of distinction, 
Carswell faced a tough crowd. One by one, the senators voted on Carswell's fate. It was clear that this was going to be close. Certainly the closest Supreme Court confirmation vote in recent memory, and maybe ever. Normally, a Supreme Court nominee would be excited on a day like this. But after months of scrutiny and weeks of interrogation, Carswell was just frustrated, beaten down, and angry. This was supposed to be the opportunity of a lifetime, his chance to go down in history. And now here he was, having been trashed by his own colleagues, declared unfit for the court by America's most respected newspaper, and called mediocre, even by his own supporters. It felt to him like the nomination that was supposed to make his career had instead ruined his life. But presumably it would all be worth it if he were confirmed. If there were just 51 votes in his favor, he'd have a place in history. That wasn't Carswell's fate. The final tally was 51 nays, 45 yays. 13 Republicans voted against Nixon's nominee. Before Nixon, the last president to lose two Supreme Court confirmation battles in a row was Grover Cleveland in 1894. Carswell was infuriated. He went home to Florida and immediately threw in the towel, er, gown. He resigned his lifetime appointment to the Court of Appeals and announced he would run against Democratic Congressman William C. Kramer for Florida's open Senate seat, vacated by the retiring incumbent. Carswell wanted to make Senate liberals pay for tanking his nomination. He wanted to prove that what he called the dark, evil winds of liberalism could still be turned back. But in the end, all he proved was, once again, his own mediocrity. The November Senate election in Florida was a landslide as Carswell hoped, just not in his favor. Kramer took the Senate seat and Carswell was left jobless. He was forced to return to his private law practice. As for the man who started the whole ugly saga in the first place, President Nixon railed and blustered against Carswell's opponents. In a fiery speech, he characterized attacks against his nominees as, quote, malicious character assassination. Then, Nixon announced that he now considered it impossible, thanks to the current Senate, to get a Southern, strict constitutionalist nominee confirmed to the Supreme Court. So, despite what the president characterized as his own absolute right of choice when it came to filling vacancies on the highest court, he would not nominate a third Southerner. Instead, in May, the vacant seat was finally filled by nominee number three, Harry Blackman. He was a Northern Republican from Nashville, Illinois, with impeccable judicial qualifications. Though a bit of an eccentric, he was well-liked and didn't court controversy. The most shocking thing Blackman had ever done was sing baritone in the Harvard Glee Club. The confirmation vote this time was 94 to 0. Ironically, after Nixon made such a big show of catering to the right wing of the South, Blackman went down in history as one of the court's most influential liberals. He ended up authoring the majority opinion in Roe v. Wade, for instance. 
The farther south, farther right edict from Nixon to his strategists didn't produce a southern justice or a right-wing justice. But it did help to bring about the outcome Nixon cared about most, his own re-election in 1972. Facing off against the same Senator McGovern who called Carswell racist and mediocre, Nixon won in a landslide. He even picked up those five Deep South states he coveted, which had gone to a third party in 1968. It's impossible to calculate exactly how much the two failed Supreme Court nominations contributed to Nixon's re-election. This was just one part of Tricky Dick's Southern strategy. As always, in presidential politics, there were other uncontrollable factors in play, too, including the changing economy of the South. That being said, most historians believe that the Senate's rejection of Hainsworth and Carswell helped Nixon significantly. Thanks to fighting so hard to get a Southerner onto the Supreme Court, he was seen as committed to Southern interests. The lengthy controversies around the nominations even worked to his advantage. The president had plenty of chances to rile up Southerners with fiery speeches in defense of his nominees. It was an impressive electoral victory, no matter how you slice it, but even more so for a president as embattled as Nixon. After failing to keep his campaign promise to end the Vietnam War, Nixon faced national protest marches and widespread campus demonstrations calling for peace. When four protesters at Kent State were murdered by the National Guard, Nixon took much of the blame. Yet, in part because of his controversial Southern strategy, Nixon got a second term. Of course, we all know how it ended. More on that in a future episode. Meanwhile, Carswell sank deeper into depression and regret. He'd gone from picturing himself on the Supreme Court to hustling for clients in his private law practice. In June of 1976, Carswell met a man in the restroom at a Tallahassee mall. This particular men's room was known as a good place to meet men for sex. After some discussion there, Carswell drove with the other man to the nearby woods. There, the stranger revealed himself to be an undercover vice officer. He promptly placed Carswell under arrest for battery, but felt there wasn't enough evidence to charge him with an attempted unnatural act, which is how it was actually described at the time. Carswell, a married father of four, was devastated and humiliated. He apparently threatened suicide, prompting the arresting officers to have him briefly hospitalized. In October of 1976, Carswell pleaded no contest to the battery charge. Three years later, Carswell called the police from his room at an Atlanta hotel. They found him bloodied and bruised. Carswell told the responding officers that he met a man at the hotel's skating rink and invited him upstairs, presumably for a sexual encounter. Instead, the other man beat him with a sharp object. That was the last big headline Carswell made before his death in 1992. These days, he's mostly remembered in relation to the unintentionally funny moment when Senator Hrushka praised his mediocrity to reporters. 
I'm happy to say that mediocre Americans still have not formed any official lobbying groups to obtain representation on the Supreme Court. The other two branches of government, however, have historically done their part to give mediocre people a voice. In recent years, some historians have proposed a new way of looking at G. Harold Carswell, one that would give him a slightly different place in history. Based on the two incidents in the late 1970s, some people believe he was the first, and so far, only gay or bisexual person nominated to the Supreme Court. It's now some 18 years too late to ask Carswell any questions about this. But the answer would likely have been complicated. For men of Carswell's generation and conservative background, the idea of an openly gay identity was extremely foreign. Thankfully, that's one thing that has changed since Carswell's time. Today, there are 10 openly LGBT judges serving on 10 state Supreme Courts and one openly gay Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Puerto Rico. Maybe someday one of them will become the first LGBT person appointed to the United States Supreme Court. And maybe politicians will stop using lifetime appointments to the most powerful judicial body in the world as political footballs. Nah, probably not. That one sounds like a longer shot, but we can always hope. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with Scandal Number 41, the story of James Traficant, who was expelled from Congress for corruption. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream political scandals on Spotify, just open the app, tap browse, and type political scandals in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Political Scandals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Isabella Way, and Joel Stein. This episode of Political Scandals was written by Yelena War, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Richard Rossner and Kate Leonard.